Why, hello there. You are listening to the Aesthetic Vibes podcast and I'm your host, Amy. This is the podcast where we only put out aesthetic vibes. There are too many bad vibes in the universe, so this podcast is dedicated to turning that around and spreading all the positivity. This podcast will focus on all types of relevant and irrelevant topics. Sometimes we dive into the deep and meaningful, and other times they're completely meaningless. But one thing's for sure, you will walk away with a really aesthetic vibe. And I hope I can empower you to build a really aesthetic life. Welcome to this week's podcast where we take a trip into the creepy and spooky. I am an absolute lover of all things scary. One of my most favorite things to do is to sit down, put on a scary movie, turn out the lights and relax. I really enjoy scary movies that are based around social media or some sort of technology. Um, and look, to be fair, there aren't too many worth seeing, but it's a fun area nonetheless. So this week I'm going to share three of the best internet horror stories or myths, uh, otherwise referred to as creepypastas. Um, I used the term creepypasta uh, the other day and I said to my husband, oh, you know, I want to do this particular topic. I think it's so interesting. Do you know any really good creepypastas? He's like, creepy what? (laughs) What is that? (laughs) So I had to explain that a creepypasta is a story that's you know been hanging around the internet for a while usually, um, and we never know if they're true or not, um, or whether they're completely made up, uh, whether it's something in the middle and there's uh, you know a bit of truth in there and a bit of you know f- flexible truth <laughs> or untruths. So I think uh, the most famous creepypasta is Slenderman. And uh, I think most people would have heard of Slenderman, so I won't go into too much detail. Um, But a simple Google search will show you millions of hits uh, surrounding Slenderman the myth and Slenderman in real life because it has spilled into uh, real life. So if you haven't heard of it, highly recommend you Google. Um, Or maybe not if you don't like scary things. He's quite a creepy looking guy. Okay, so today's focus. I've handpicked three internet stories or myths to share with you. Okay, you ready? (laughs) Sit down, (laughs) turn the light off, and let's do this. also realized that in uh, last week's podcast you might have heard a weird noise in the background kind of like a, a metallic noise um, that was my necklaces I have two very big necklaces on with uh, pendants on them uh, crystals um, a wedding ring and um, something else so they were kind of clanging against each other every time I sort of sat forward um, and I had a lot of difficulty editing the sound out but 
we are prepared today. I have clipped them up so they're not going to jingle. Ever heard of Ted the Caver? This was a really, really interesting read. It's a very big story um, and it spans over many weeks into months um, throughout the story. It's a very long read. Uh, so it's one of those things that's, um, you know, you have to really sit down and put the effort into getting through all of the detail within it. If you choose to read it, definitely put aside some time, get yourself some snacks and, and get very comfortable. It's a long read. So Ted the Caver is an actual real person who caves or is otherwise a caver. I knew caving existed uh, and it's not something I would do, but I wasn't completely aware of the logistics behind caving. So you explore caves looking for new locations or challenges, um, really, really small areas to squeeze your body into to discover something that nobody else has discovered before. My worst nightmare, because I'm highly claustrophobic, so much so I had to have had to have an MRI when I broke my ankle and they put me in the machine up to my chest um, and I had to be sedated because I just I can't handle small spaces. They really freak me out. Anyway, caving, pass, <laughs> hard pass, uh, especially when I saw some of the photos. Um, very hard pass. You have to be a very brave individual to cave. Okay. Let's get back to Ted. Ted had a blog, a really old school blog. Uh, it's still online uh, and very easy to access with a simple search. Uh, you see pictures of his adventures uh, and the particular story that we're going to discuss today. The pictures really add the lens of authenticity. And, you know, where, when you're reading the story questioning, is this real or not? The fact that he's gone to the efforts of taking photos had many readers thinking this could be a true story because you are providing that evidence throughout. Ted and his mate, Brad, who he refers to as B through the story, are out exploring uh, an unknown cave location. They don't share the name or the location because they don't want anyone to know where the cave is. So they identify a small hole in the wall in the cave where there's some air blowing out of. Apparently this is a sign that there might be something uncovered from where the air is coming from. Ted and Brad had a little look around and they thought, you know what, this deserves further investigation. They then start on this long and tiring job of caving the cave out. So I know nothing about caving, but they're using things like drills and little pickaxe things. I actually didn't know that you could just go into a cave and just start chiseling away at stuff. I didn't think you could do that. So I was quite surprised. But I'd say the, uh, the story goes into a lot of detail around the efforts behind the carvings that they were doing to make the hole that they found big enough to squeeze a human body through. The task of carving out the hole takes months and months and months. And there's multiple diary entries of them coming and going and giving progressive updates around the work that they're doing. In one of the sessions where they're doing this carving with their, their pickaxes and so forth, 
they start to hear some unusual noises coming from inside the hole. And at one point, they claim that it's almost like a screaming noise. So this was the first uh, alert, if you like, that something doesn't feel right here. In a separate trip, they bring along a small dog um, who is linked to one of the individuals caving with them. Uh, And they talk about how she gets really anxious, refuses to go any further into the cave, um, and that there's uh, the dog spooked, basically. Um, The most terrifying part is not necessarily the ending of the story, which I'll get to. But for me, when Ted is describing how he needs to contort his body to enter into these small crevices, so eventually they get the hole big enough for him to push himself through. In some spaces, Ted needs to breathe out all of the air in his lungs to even fit through some of the crevices in the cave. So there's points where he's holding his breath, which for me, couldn't. there's nothing more frightening than that. That is absolutely insane in my mind. So they continue on and in a later trip, Ted is through the wall and looking at this inside of the cave and he notices some unusual symbols on the wall. They also bring a friend whose name's Joe um, and Joe's a caver as well and an explorer. Joe ends up going into this little caved area that they've found. Um, But something happens in the small location where he enters and he refuses to actually talk about what he's experienced and completely shuts down on the drive home. They kind of shrug it off. You know, they're not too sure what's going on. They're not too sure what's up with Joe. I mean, you can't force someone to talk, basically. So in the final trip... Ted finally enters the cave and his goal now is to get to the end of the cave. So they've been able to explore it to a certain degree. They've gotten to a certain point at every t- at every entry, but now they need to get to the end so they can understand, okay, does this end? What's out here? What, you know, what what is further on in this cave? In this final trip, Ted manages to injure himself. Uh, He hears a noise and he lifts his head up really fast and hits the light on his helmet into the ceiling, shatters the light and also jars his back because his head hits it. It goes down through his neck, the pain, and then out into his back. So this plunges Ted into complete darkness in the walls of the cave. He starts to hear scraping noises and just really unusual sounds and starts to panic. So his light's out. He's panicking. He he then remembers that he actually had a phone to communicate with his friend who's outside the cave. Apparently this phone has a cable uh, that's attached to it and you have to bring the cable with you as you are kind of navigating through uh, the cave. And his friends out, Brad's outside the cave with the other end of it, and they communicate. And there's a look. I don't know. I don't know. There's a line. It makes me think of uh, where you put two cups on the end of a string. <laughs> that's all I'm imagining right now. Pretty confident that's not correct. Um, so anyway, he goes. He th- he thinks to himself, you know what? I've still got my phone, and I can communicate. Um, he's clicking the phone on, and it's you know it's not turning on, and he's thinking, what's going on here? He sees that the phone cable is stuck on a rock. So he gently pulls the cable and it snaps. So not only is he in complete darkness, the phone's not working, 
<laughs> he didn't bring, so he, for some bizarre reason, he didn't bring backup lighting. Then he remembers he has glow sticks in his bag. So he cracks the glow sticks. The first couple don't work. Um, and then he cracks the glow sticks and he's using that as his lighting to try to get him now back out of the cave because, you know, they haven't gotten to the end. There's no, there's no way he's going to go any further. So he's turning around. He's got the glow sticks and that's his lighting, which I could imagine would be fairly miserable. The next part of the story is quite lengthy and it goes through all of the fear and emotions that he had while he was stuck in the wall of the caves. Um, and keeping in mind, the entry and exit is very small. So he said to enter and exit, there's only one way, and that's your hands up over your head, stretched out straight, and, and as you pull yourself or get pulled or pushed by somebody to assist you getting out through that hole that they carved out. Scary stuff. So Ted eventually makes it back to the opening of the cave, but the noises have become so loud that he's certain they aren't alone in that cave. They need to get their stuff. They need to get the fuck out of there. ASAP. The sounds are so loud that he's positive that there is a presence or someone else with them. Brad starts to hear the noises too and agrees something just isn't right. They get their shit. They get out of there as fast as possible. They successfully leave. So there's no further issues. There's no further horrors. It kind of stops there. Weird, weird stuff. The next blog post is several weeks later and there's been a bit of a, a lull in Ted updating his blog. In his final post, he starts to talk about a really tough time that he's had since being in the cave. He's not eating, he's not sleeping, um, he's not even able to go to work, he's off on sick leave. He started seeing things out the corner of his eyes or in the corner of his vision he said he's also started hallucinating. Um, one night he can't sleep at all, uh, so he gets up and he decides to drive out and look at the city lights because maybe that will calm him down and he'll be able to go home and get some rest. Um, while at the location, he runs into Joe, who I mentioned earlier, um, who came that one time and did the exploring. Something weird happened, Joe wouldn't speak. He notices that Joe looks incredibly exhausted gaunt and sick basically looking into a mirror they both look the exact same ted says one thing we have to go back joe says yep we do we have to go back and they agree tomorrow so following this ted drives to brad's house and he tells them look we're heading back we've got to head back we've got to work out what's going on because Joe, myself, we're not sleeping, we're not eating. And when he sees Brad, Brad isn't in that bad shape. Um, but keep in mind, Brad didn't go through the hole in the cave. So maybe that's the rationale behind why Brad doesn't look that bad. He said he was a bit off, but nothing like Joe and Ted were. So that night, Ted sleeps at Brad's house. Um, and he says that he gets the best night's sleep that he's had in a long time. Weeks, in fact. He writes in his final entry that he just really needs closure. He ne they need to get to the end of the cave, work out what's there, and close this chapter of their lives. And Ted finishes the blog post with, he looks forward to updating everybody with answers. And then Ted is never heard of again. 
the beauty of this story is the writing is impeccable. The story itself is super interesting and intriguing, along with the fact that there's a lot of detail within the story. So it paints a lot of visuals for you as you're reading it. I think the the greatest part is the ending leaves us wondering, whatever happened to our friend Ted and his mates, Joe and Brad? What happened? Um, they've never been seen on the blog again, and they've never been tracked down online. Um... I did do some digging though, so I'm able to debunk it, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to leave the story there, um, but it's one of the first to ever grace the internet back, I think this story was in 2001. It's one of the most read creepypastas online. The storytelling is wonderful and you become so invested in finding out what on earth is going on here. Um, but. We never do find out. We're just left to wonder. Okay, let's move to Creepypasta number two. This is the story of Jeff the Killer. This story is very different to the first. The writing is very simplistic. The story is much shorter. Uh, it feels a little bit more far removed. But nonetheless, I found this one a bit of a creepy read. So we're introduced to Jeff and his brother Lou um, and their mum and dad. They've recently moved to a new house and the boys are starting at a new school. On the first day, they're bullied by a group of boys. So I think there's three boys in the story and one of them has a knife and they threaten to stab the brothers. Jeff ends up beating the three boys up single-handedly and then stabbing two of them. Um, everybody lives though. However, the boys go to the police and then the police show up at Jeff's house and Jeff's younger brother takes full responsibility for what happened and said, you know, Jeff had nothing to do with it. It was all me. Um, you know, Jeff's Jeff's there yelling, saying, no, he's lying, he's lying. Anyway, the police listen to Lou. They go, righto, um, we're taking you in. Uh, you're going to spend a year in juvie. The story kind of pauses there and we go to Jeff's mother um, has RSVP'd to one of the neighbor's uh, kids' birthday parties. Jeff doesn't want to go because the kids are a little bit younger, but everybody in the neighborhood's going to be there. So his mum's quite insistent that it will be a really good opportunity for him to make some friends. So they show up at the party and one of the boys from the original incident shows up and gets into a fight with Jeff. They end up in a fight. Uh, they, the fight's bizarre. It starts outside, they go inside, vodka's fallen off a shelf on them so they got vodka on them and then a bottle of bleach falls on them um the young boy then starts laughing and Jeff's saying you know what's so funny what's so funny they're still fighting and then the younger boy throws a lighter at him and he basically goes up in flames Jeff that is Jeff blacks out and we go from the fight scene to him waking up at the hospital with bandages over his face Jeff's been there for quite a few weeks. 
The doctor finally removes the bandages and Jeff's lips are burnt, a dark shade of red. His face is pale white. All of his hair is singed off. His family try to reassure him that, look, it's not too bad. Jeff goes to the mirror and he actually really likes his new face. He's laughing and saying that it's just perfect for him. They all even go home. Uh, alarm bells, major alarm bells. Till later that night, Jeff's mother's woken up to a noise in the bathroom. She walks to the bathroom, opens the door. She sees Jeff inside. He's taken a knife and carved a smile into his cheeks and he's burnt his eyelids off. The reason he burnt his eyelids off was so he could never close his eyes and he always had to look at his dismembered face. So Jeff's mother becomes really scared, runs to get the father. Uh, Jeff follows and then kills both of them and then kills a little brother. There's actually images online that depict Jeff post-accident, so post-face being burnt off. Um, and you can actually see them. It's, it's really an interesting story um, with origins quite deep in the olden days of the internet. So it, back then it was very difficult to determine is this real or not. And the images that surfaced with this story are quite frightening. And you can Google them and you get a pretty alarming picture uh, of an individual who looks exactly as I described. So, you know, bringing over that idea of what's true and what's false. story I will share is called Psychosis. This is a very different take on the creepy internet story. This one I found highly intriguing because you are unsure what is happening pretty much through the entire story and you're trying to ask is this someone who has gone off the deep end or is there something else going on here? Okay. This story, we have the protagonist, John, and he lives in a windowless basement in the bottom of a building. John hasn't had contact with people over the past few days and he's been busy working. He's a programmer. Within his apartment, John has minimal phone service. He makes several attempts to leave his apartment to make calls to friends, but none of them pick up. He has a couple of really odd phone calls, one from a wrong number who successfully guesses his name and then a further call from his friend Amy who tries to convince him uh, to leave his apartment and come to a party. John starts to get a little suspicious of Amy's motives and whether she is who she's claiming to be. The entire time, John is actually writing his thoughts in a journal and we are the journal that he's actually speaking to. In this conversation with Amy, she makes a couple of really unusual comments which concern John. So what he does is he ends up putting an old webcam in the corridor outside of his house so he can actually monitor people coming and going. Amy's been trying to contact John for a few days, but due to his minimal phone service, most calls haven't gone through. She says that she's going to go to John's house to check on him. 
Prior to her getting there, John sends out a mass text to all of his contacts in his phone asking, have you seen anyone lately? No one responds but Amy. Amy arrives at his apartment and he jokingly asks her to verify herself at the webcam. She does so and then tells John to open the door. John has this really uneasy feeling in his stomach that Amy isn't who she says she is. So he asks her to give him a random fact about their friendship. Amy mentions they met in a playground many years ago when they were too old to be there. John breathes a sigh of relief. He then pauses over this fact and realises word for word this was what he wrote in his journal yesterday. So if someone's watching him or after him they would have seen him write that in his journal. So John doesn't open the door and instead just screams and has a meltdown. Amy eventually leaves. More paranoid than ever, John destroys everything in his apartment that's electronic or could be a communication device. In the midst of this extreme paranoia and destruction of all of his possessions, John hears a knock at the door. And mind you, this is three days since Amy showed up and tried entering. At the door is Amy, a police officer and a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist explains that John's suffering from cyber psychosis and that he's one of many nationwide individuals suffering from this condition. They basically say, we need you to come with us. We need to treat you so you don't spread this further because it's already a pandemic. We're left to assume John has opened the door. This is because the next entry starts with, I've been asking for a pen and paper every day. It's finally been given to him. And so he starts writing. He writes on the paper, what do they think I'll do? Poke my eyes out? The bandages over his eyes are now part of him. He writes on the paper that he sits in a padded room day in, day out. He refers to the psychiatrist as the entity that brings him food and water. He also hears the entity having fake conversations in the hallway so John can hear them and be sure that they're not the entity. Amy visits and John notes she's actually a perfect version of Amy. As a reader, you're sitting here going, I think he's, uh, I think he's lost the plot. Um, he's in a padded room day in, day out. He's poked his eyeballs out. Uh, he, he does comment. So whilst he's writing, he can't see what he's writing. And he says that this will probably be one of my last entries because I think I'm soon going to forget how to write because I'm not going to need to write. So it's all quite um, like illegible writing, this particular part of his journal, according to the, the ending, which I'm going to read now. <laughs> so strap in. So the ending of the story is the doctor reads the paper the patient has scribbled on. It's barely readable, written in the shaky script of one who could not see. He wanted to smile at the man's steadfast resolve, a reminder of the human will to survive. But he knew that the patient was completely delusional. 
After all, a sane man would have fallen for the deception long ago. The doctor wanted to smile. He wanted to whisper words of encouragement to the delusional man. He wanted to scream. But the nerve filaments wrapped around his head and into his eyes made him do otherwise. His body walked into the cell like a puppet and told the patient once more that he was wrong and that nobody was trying to deceive him. Uh, what the hell? <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> poor John. Jeez, poor, poor John. Um, <laughs> what the hell? I got to that bit and I was like, I, I, I was pretty sure, you know, John's got, you know, tinfoil on his head and, you know, he's flipping out over nothing. And then I got to that and was like, oh, damn. Great way to end the story. Uh, chilling, chilling. I love the uh, the back and forth as you're reading that one going, hmm, is he losing his mind or something else going on here? Uh, so, thoughts. Do you guys find these scary? Uh, I, I don't necessarily find them scary. I find them fascinating. I was actually doing the research for this episode uh, late at night while my husband was on night shift. So I was the only one home apart from my dog and cat. Um, I loved every second of the research. I was kind of tucked up. I had like a TV show on in the background and um, I was sitting there wondering, you know, is Jeff the killer going to jump out of my closet? I was like, come get some. <laughs> I loved it. I personally love it. I think, I think these are wonderful. I think... The fact that they date back so many years ago when this type of stuff wasn't common on the internet. You can see why they're popular. These are some of the highest rated creepypastas. So I definitely recommend uh, having a little check out of some of the legacy creepypastas if you're in for a good scare. segment to close out the podcast so talking about scary stuff I thought what about my ridiculous fears and let's share those scary things don't really scare me uh I do have irrational fears though that make no apparent sense so I can sit and watch you know scary movie after scary movie after scary movie and then I can go to bed my head hits the pillow and I'm off in dreamland having a wonderful dream. I do force my husband to watch scary movies with me. Um, and back like many years ago, uh, we would watch scary movies and then have problems sleeping or, you know, I think that something's going to jump out at him and get really spooked walking down the dark corridor. <laughs> and then there's me just happily snoring away um, after watching scary movies. <laughs> um, but I love them, right? They don't scare me. You can you can put anything in front of me. It doesn't scare me. But there's some weird stuff that does. My first irrational fear, cockroaches. They're filthy. They are filthy. Um, not only are they filthy, but they can fly. And they have babies in your house. The thought of a cockroach touching me makes my skin crawl. They are completely disgusting. 
Um, I lived in a really run-down apartment back in my uh, like early 20s. There were four little apartments. They were actually really, really small. It was a bedroom, a tiny living area, a kitchen and a bathroom, and that was it. Very, very small. Very, very run-down as well. And I wasn't paying much for rent, but we had a bug issue there. And cockroaches would basically go from apartment to apartment. So that would always freak me out. Um, we kept contacting the landlord who owned all four saying like dude you have to fumigate this is shit and it's disgusting and he just refused because um it was just too expensive so I hated them then I hate them now and they are truly foul I absolutely hate them they, they make me ill if there's one in my house um and sometimes because uh, I live in Sydney in New South Wales Australia what happens here is the weather changes really fast. It'll go from stinking hot to freezing cold. And a lot of the times when it's transitioning from cold to hot, the humidity brings the cockroaches out. And sometimes they might come up your drains. Uh, we've got mats across all of the, the drains in the bathrooms. Uh, so it prevents it. But occasionally you'll get like those big drain ones come up. And I will say to my husband, like, I don't care what time of night it is. I don't care. I will not touch them. He has to catch it. He has to kill it and just put it out of its misery and make sure it doesn't come near me. My second irrational fear is things with sticky adhesive on them. This is a really weird one, but I really don't like sticky stuff. And it's more so new things that come with sticky adhesive stickers. So think of things like um, the bottom of a bottle, like you buy a water bottle from Kmart and you pull that adhesive off the bottom. Uh, stickers on apples, uh, stickers on the base of high heels or new shoes. I don't know what it is, but the stickiness and the fact that it's rubbish. Most of the time, we don't need that shit on there. We don't need a sticker on an apple as long as it's in the right bucket. It's in the like the pink ladies bucket. I'll go pick my pink ladies apple in happy days. I don't need it to have a sticker on it. My third irrational fear are birds. <laughs> I really just don't appreciate birds at all. Uh, I think it comes from many, many, many years ago when I was like, how old would I have been? 12 or younger? Younger. I think it was younger. Uh, we were at a park and I think we were riding bikes. Can't really remember. But we were we were doing something at a park. I'm pretty sure we were riding bikes. And um, we were swept by magpies. And didn't matter. Like We were running full pelt out of the park. And they were just continuing to swoop. I just don't like them. The biggest issues for me are seagulls. Because they're, they're bold. You've got hot chips. They're coming to get them. You've got bread, they're taking it off you. The second are bin chickens, otherwise known as ibis, but in Australia, bin chickens. <laughs> For anyone that doesn't understand the name, it's because they eat out of bins and they drink bin juice. It's disgusting. They're bold as well. They're super bold. When I was working in the CBD, uh, you'd often have them coming at you and snatching food out of your hands it's also quite funny while everybody hates them they can stop the traffic in the middle of the city and everybody will stop to wait for the bin chickens to cross the road 
all the buses will stop, all the cars will stop, and they will leisurely cross the road, and then everybody will keep driving. So it's a firm no for bin chickens. No thank you. Uh, and the third one are magpies and bowerbirds, I think they're called. But they're the ones in the change of season as we move to spring. They lay eggs in nests and nests are in trees and then they protect the eggs. And so if you walk near a tree <laughs> that's got an egg in a nest, it's pretty much all over Red Rover. Your ass will be swooped. Um, I remember a friend of mine got attacked at a bus stop and like her head was profusely bleeding and she had to go to the hospital and have like, uh, you know, like a clean out and then tetanus shots just because the birds are foul. So yeah, good times. <laughs> Keep the birds away from me. My last irrational fear is people that drive extremely close to my car. So I'm really paranoid. I was taught to drive by a driving instructor. And one of the things he said to me was, you always stop behind somebody far enough back that you can see their tires on the road. So that's the that's my that's that's how close I get, right? I see the tires, I stop, I don't get any closer. His rationale behind that was if you have uh, like a pileup, somebody hits somebody from the back and then it sort of ricochets down and everybody's hitting everybody, hopefully the hit won't push you into that car in front. So I give a lot of distance. I don't drive close to the backs of cars. And in Sydney, you can't because you just never know when someone's going to jump on the brakes or when they're going to accelerate weirdly, they're going to pull over on you. Like Sydney traffic is shit. So I always give lots of room. I don't cut people off. I let people in. I have no problems letting cars in. And I know some people just hate it. I have no issues with it. And I definitely don't speed because there's just so many speed cameras in Sydney. I get really anxious and frightened when I look in my revision mirror and I see a car that's so close to the back of me that I can't even see their number plate. And the fear for me, I don't know if this is irrational, it's probably irrational that it's something that is a constant fear, like it never leaves. My fear is that something is going to take their attention away from what they should be doing, driving, and if I need to brake, they might not see me brake, or they might need to brake and might not do it in enough time, and they might end up the back of my car and I'll end up the back of somebody else. But hopefully not if I've left that space and I only see the back of the tyres and I've left that space and I've done the right thing. Having a car run up the back of my car scares me to no end. Irrational, rational, I don't know. Maybe I've taken it to a whole new level which makes it irrational. Anyway, those are my ridiculous fears. That's a wrap. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode where we talked all about the spooky and scary of the old school internet. That makes me sound a million years old. <laughs> uh, and hopefully my irrational fears uh, gave you a bit of a laugh. Join me next week when I unpack the topic of friendships as adults. 
I'll also have my husband drop in and he's going to ask me a couple of silly questions and get my candid response to those questions. In the meantime, let's hang out on social media at Aesthetic Vibes Pod or drop me an email at aestheticsvibespodcast@outlook.com. at outlook.com. Until next time, bye!